Okay, what we have here is more Hebrews 12. And we were on verse 20. Let me set up the kind of the scenario here. There's a section of verses that are making a contrast between what happened at Mount Sinai and what's happening now for true Christians. All right? And the, the whole section started back on verse um, 18. Well, let me just read it again because we have different people here every Sunday and we have to really take the whole thing in to get the contrast. But we're going to start studying on verse 20. It says, For you have not come... Now, notice that phrase, you have not come. Then it's going to describe the Old Covenant theophany on Sinai. And then at verse 22, if you skip your eyes down to that, but you have come. Okay? So that's the bookends. Okay, here's what you've not come to. Here's what this is like. And then it goes forward. Here's what you have come to. And the point is going to be that what we have come to is far more superior to what they came to back then. And there are some distinct differences to what we've come to and what they came to. All right, so let me read that now. Uh, But you have not come to a mountain that may be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and a whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, even if a beast touched the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. Now, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, there's a lot of... Dan, welcome back. How are you doing? We prayed for you. Thanks, everybody, for your prayers. You don't know what that means to me when you're in intensive care, knowing your body of believers... He's praying for you. And you got access to the heavenlies and the world doesn't. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome, Dan. We, we definitely missed you. I missed you all. I just substituted in Okay. So, this, I, I don't know how far we'll get today because we're on verse 20, but I did a bunch of research, and there is a lot of material encapsulated in this section that talks about what we have come to. And the interesting thing about it is it's all unseen. And, and this is still reminding us of what it said in Hebrews 11. One, faith is the evidence of things not seen. We don't see the heavenly Jerusalem. We don't see the myriads of angels. We don't see the spirits of right, righteous men made perfect and, and so on, or the sprinkled blood. We don't actually see that. And, uh, but what we don't see is more profound and powerful than what they did see. Because what they did see, all it did was scare them, and they said, alright, enough of this. And they, they're gonna die. They had no real access to God, only through Moses, who went up on the mountain. Okay? And so that's the overall uh, import of our section. Okay, now to verse 20. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touched the mountain, 
It will be stoned. Now, to pick up where we were last time, we had a very interesting discussion based on a cross-reference in Deuteronomy 18 that I'd ask Keith Gentoff to read. And when he read it, he noticed something in there that when that God said it was a good thing that there was a mediator. right? And that if people try to barge into God's presence on their own without his appointed mediator, it's bad. It's bad. They'll just die. And not only that, I, the other thing in Deuteronomy 18, and Keith and I had some discussions on the phone this week about this, and it just makes more sense to us all the time. And that is that in the context of Deuteronomy 18, where it says that there's, it's a good thing that there's a mediator, it also says uh, warnings against divination. And it helps us understand what divination is and why it's so bad. Divination is humans trying to use their own means without a mediator to gain access to spiritual reality who, that they may think is God. And so when they go with no mediator, and they go not according to the terms that God lays out in the covenant, and when they go using techniques that they thought of, you know, because somebody says it works, I mean, honestly, that's the only... Uh, justification for divination you ever get. I think Brian can bear that out. When you debate with New Agers or spiritists, whoever, uh, necromancers, and you suggest there may be something wrong, their answer is, but it works. It makes you feel good. Or I actually get some secret information that turns out to be valid, like uh, the necromancer who speaks to a dead relative through a medium, and they get information that the medium couldn't have known by any natural means. And it turns out to be true. Well, then they're deceived in the thinking that they're really talking to the dead relative, but the spirits know things about people's past lives. I mean, what, I mean, what they were like, not past lives, their past life as they were living on the earth. Um, and so there, that's where the deception comes in. So what this boils down to, just to conclude what we were talking about last week, is that for our salvation... For our spiritual well-being, for our freedom from deception and delusion, it is necessary that there's a mediator. All right. Now, in back in Deuteronomy 18, it said, "Okay, it's a good thing." The people said, "No, you go," and, and God said, "That's a good thing." But in that same section where it says it's a good thing that they have a mediator, it's a good thing that it was Moses. And a warning not to go to divination. In the same section, Deuteronomy 18, it says, but I will raise up a prophet like you. And when I do, people should listen to him. And that is the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ. So right in the same section where it's a good thing Moses is the mediator, there's a prophecy that God will raise up another one. And that when he does come, whoever it turns out to be. Now, we know it's Messiah because the, that claim is made in the New Testament. John chapter 5, John chapter 6, uh, in the book of Hebrews, that Christ is the prophet that God said would come into the world. That when he comes, he is God's legitimate mediator. He speaks authoritatively for God. His words are the words of God. And his, in the terms of the covenant that that one would spell out are binding on anybody who would want to come to God. And the same issues apply to the New Covenant. In other words, we either come to God on the terms described and laid out by God through the mediator, Jesus Christ, and his words are binding and authoritative for us, which would be our New Covenant, or we are going to be back with divination, trying to find our own way to God by whatever terms we think 
we would like and whatever works. And Dick, uh, see, is that on? No, that's what you just gave me, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is going to go on one place for the last two weeks of March, and it was radio shows we just, you know, did last week on Christian divination. And it, and it just talks about the different techniques that Christians have come up with to try to come to God that aren't following through Jesus Christ in the words that he spoke. And the issues are the same. There, there's no difference between the old and the new in the sense that you either go the way God said or you don't. And if you don't, you're a diviner. Yes? Uh, I can't find it right now, Bob, but uh, along those lines, Darren's son offering... Oh, the strange fire. Unauthorized offering, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and you can find it all the way through the Old Covenant. Uh, Saul deciding, well, I'll just go do my own sacrifice. Alright? In uh, 1 Samuel 15. Why, why should I do this the way God said? You know, I'll just be a pragmatist. And the priest said, here, so we need a sacrifice. I'll do it. What happened to Saul? <laughs> he ended up going to a witch. And he ended up being killed by an Amalekite finished him off when he tried to commit suicide. And so Saul, and what does it say? It says rebellion is as witchcraft or divination. And then 1 Samuel 15. So you see the same issue. God has laid out the terms of the covenant, and he says this is how and where I'll meet you. And here's the terms. And anyone who says no, you know, why be so strict? Okay, Why are you so picky? You know, what does God care whether a Levite does the offering or Saul does? So Saul just takes matters into his own hands and does it the way he wants to do it. Not too bad, except for it killed him. And, and God says this is divination or witchcraft. So any time, by, by biblical definition, any time we're dissatisfied or rebellious or unhappy with the terms of the covenant that are spelled out, um, through the mediator, through what God has said once for all, and we try to just deviate and go somewhere else to get our spiritual information, whether it's some new prophet or through some new technique or whatever we might see fit, the Bible calls that divination. And we're not just making this up. And these rules aren't, are there only for one thing, and that is to protect us from deception and to make sure that we truly come to God and not become deceived by some spirit masquerading to be God. Alright? Yes? When, um, was that Saul went to the witch, did he actually, I mean, he spoke with someone. Samuel actually, yeah, which, which he rebuked him, right? Yeah, exactly. This, this is a one-time thing. Alright? Uh, because normally when you go to the witch or the necromancer, you're going to talk to a demon. But God, sovereignly, in order to rebuke Saul, actually had Samuel come back and rebuke him. Because Samuel had been the one who had been rebuking him when he was alive. So he got another dose of it. <laughs> but uh, Saul just didn't want to, he just didn't want to listen to God. Because his motives were wrong. Remember, when, in just a second, remember when uh, in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel just keeps telling Saul, no, you sin. Well, no, it was the people. They took the spoil. He was not supposed to take the spoil from the Malachites. And, and Samuel says, well, what's this bleeding of the sheep? It sounds like spoil to me. Well, and then he says, well, I just spared Amalek, uh, Amalek, the, the, or Agag, the king. I, you know, I killed all the worthless people, but the one, this guy, he has something valuable. I, you know, I want to keep him. And, and so 
Samuel kept contending with him, and that's when he says rebellion is as witchcraft or divination, and I take that much more literally than I used to. That it really is divination to not be willing to come to God on his terms. And, and you gain your spiritual knowledge. And, and then finally, after all of this pleading, Saul said, okay, Samuel, I'm going to admit to you privately that I sinned, but honor me in front of the people. And, and so he never in his heart would accept God's authority. And really felt like he could do this freestyle. Remember we had the debate and I talked about freestyle pathways to God. That's that's Saul right there, and uh, it's true. Okay, Scott. Well, I was just gonna some further comment on the uh, witch of Endor. Yeah, the, the one that Saul went to. Yeah. Well, anyway, she was surprised that Saul that uh, Samuel. She was scared. She was scared. Yeah, it freaked her out. To use modern terminology. <laughs> yeah, Brian. I've gotten challenged on this in the radio occasionally, where some people use that story to say that all. Uh, mediums are fake because she was surprised that something real actually happened. Mm-hmm. I got that argument. Okay, but I wouldn't say all mediums are fake. Some of them may be, but there are real spirits right, feeding real information to people. But I've had a person try to come to the point of view saying, well, she, she was so surprised because they're all frauds. That, uh, yeah, yeah, but that's, that does, that's not a valid implication of that passage. She was surprised because the one time Samuel actually showed up. All right. And it was a bad thing for Saul because now he got some more rebuke. Yes. I I get the feeling sometimes that this country is run by mediums. The country? (laughs) Well, you wonder. (laughs) Well, you wonder where they're getting their information. Uh, well, actually, when I did the research for the radio show, I read Al Gore's book. 370 pages, I read every word. And, yeah, <laughs> I know I want you to feel sorry for me. And, and, but, but it's really very similar in the sense that he goes through, here's what the, he talks about all these different, you know, here's monotheism and some things we can glean from that, and here's, Pagan polytheism and some ideas that might help the environment from that. And he's basically going, he comes into his before, a priori, before deciding anything, he already knows that one thing matters and that's environmentalism. That's his ethic. You start with that. You don't end up with it. You start with it. All right. And now knowing before I ever did any study that environmentalism is the only ethic worth having. Why? Just because by fiat I decided this. Now I'm going to survey all the ideas and all the world religions and all the philosophies, and I'm going to find the one that helps me most be environmentalist. And what I concluded is that's totally backwards. The ethics aren't derived from the human mind or from nature. Ethics are revealed in Scripture. And so we have a totally different worldview. We begin with the idea that God has spoken. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, and God gives us morals. And as I said on the radio, I like the way God does it much better because you know what the terms are and you know what he expects of you. And if you mess up, he provides a plan of salvation and forgiveness and it's guaranteed we'll mess up. But in this other version, there's there's no forgiveness. There's not even a clear path about what you're supposed to do. The world is under assault by everybody on the planet, 
and we have to stop it, and we're terrible sinners because we're part of the problem. There's no forgiveness. There's no answer. There's no hope. Yes? I was just going to say, years ago when I was... Years ago when this little boy was about four years old, he's 21 now, but his mother mixed the Bible and the occult. Yeah, they use occult, they use Bibles in occult ceremonies. I once was witnessing to, and when I was at Iowa State University, um, we used to go back, after I became a Christian, I went to Bible college, I used to drive back every weekend to witness on the campus where I used to go to school. And we ran across an occultist young lady and led her to the Lord. And she started telling us about what she did. And it was kind of an amazing thing, because she, she said they had hymns, Bibles, but then they had this trumpet that would talk to people. A trumpet, okay, and some voice of the Spirit would come and they'd have their, their, their meeting and the trumpet would talk to them. When, and so, anyhow, she did come to the Lord. So we brought her to church with us and we were going to the Assemblies of God uh, church. It was, remember, Hilton Griswold? Uh, he used to be the piano player for the Blackwood Quartet back in the 40s and he was our, our pastor in Ames. And we brought, we brought this lady in there and they were Pentecostal, so people were raising their hands and praising God. And then afterwards she says, well, I can't go back here. And I said, why not? Well, that's just a little too much. I expect church to kind of just be, you know. And I said, okay, so when you're in the occult, you'll listen to a demon talk out of a trumpet. And that's not too weird, but going to church and raising your hands and praising God is too weird. Well, I never thought of it that way. <laughs> so anyhow. Uh, to me, I'll take the praising God over the talking trumpet any time. <laughs> okay, so what we're being told here, now let me bring, we've been talking about this whole idea of needing a mediator. Now what we're being told from all of this stuff, this going back to Deuteronomy and Numbers and Exodus and bringing Moses is what they learned there forward to the New Covenant, is this, that if this was so awesome, in the Old Covenant, how much greater is what we have now? And being how what we have now in Christ is so much greater than what Moses said, how much worse off will it be for us if we rebel? Amen. And if we don't want to listen? And we don't want Jesus' words to be binding on us? It's worse to reject the words of Jesus than it is to reject the words of Moses. And the people that rejected the words of Moses were killed Amen. in the mouth of two or three witnesses. So how much sore punishment do you think we'd get? That's what it says. I'm just telling you what Hebrews says. Now, that may sound strict, but, and I've had people say that to me, well, you're so, you're so narrow, you're so narrow-minded. Oh. <laughs> well, well, you're one too. <laughs> and strict. And say, Well, you know, it isn't about some religious leaders trying to be strict. It's that God reveals the terms of the covenant for our good and for our salvation and for our protection from spiritual deception. Amen. And uh, we, we don't want to be any stricter than God is in the Bible. And legalism is just as bad as uh, liberalism. But whatever God says, that's what he says because he loves us and he wants to preserve us from uh, loss. Okay, so here's what it says. Hebrews 12, 24. They could not bear the command, even if a beast touched the mountain, it will be stoned. 
So what it means here, basically, is they had terror at encountering God. It was awesome. It was scary. It it was an amazing theophany. And the idea was that under the Old Covenant, God was really quite unapproachable. All right? And so that's all the more remarkable when you think that now we have access into the holy place through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we don't have to be the high priest and it doesn't have to be the Day of Atonement. Um, okay, uh, Noel, could you look up, look up Exodus uh, 19, 12, and 13? And then, uh, Pat, why don't you look up Galatians 3, 10? And I have a citation here. Exodus 19, verses 12 and 13. <coughs> Yes. Oh. We're very impatiently at that. No. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? Yes. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him. But he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Alright, they can come up to it, but they can't touch it. So that, that, that's where you get this idea of unapproachability. Okay, and then the other passage was Galatians 3.10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under, the, under a curse, for it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Okay, so everyone who's under works of the law is cursed because it is written, Cursed is he who does not abide in all of the works of the law. We'll come back to this next week. Now remember, next week we're having a round table. This is, we're going to have a discussion on free will. Right? Ryan's going to join me and I'll mic him up too. And we're going to talk about answer all kinds of whatever questions you have from that article I wrote or anything else. Galatians 3.10 will be discussed, I would assume. Because that verse right there disproves the basic Pelagian doctrine that says whatever God commands, man is able to obey. No matter what. Because this, that verse right there proves that that's not a universal principle. Because Paul uses... The fact that we're commanded to obey all this in the law as proof that we're cursed, meaning what? We can't do it. If it was presumed that we could do it, like Finney says, then Galatians 3.10 doesn't work. So, what, in logic, um, one counterexample disproves a universal claim. So, if somebody says there's no gold in Alaska, that's their claim. If you find one piece of gold, their claim is false. All right. One counterexample disproves the universal claim. So Galatians 3.10 disproves Finney's axiom and Pelagius, Pelagius as well, who said ought apply, implies can. God will never command us, says Finney, to do what we're not fully able to do as we are. And Galatians 3.10 proves that that's false. Now, you could back up and say sometimes, all right, because now you don't have a universal claim, and then and then you can argue that point. But you can't make a universal claim if you have one counterexample. But that's that's for next week. Yes. My friend uses that verse that when um, 
Jesus was talking to the woman that sinned, and she was going to be stoned, and he told her, I sin no more. He said she wouldn't, he wouldn't have commanded her that if it wasn't possible. That's the same thing. That's Pelagian. See, we have, because, uh, especially nowadays, there's not much training in theology, even for pastors that go to seminary. All right? Because of our cultural uh, vacuum of theological training, people make very simple errors because they've never discussed the issues and they don't know what they are and they don't know the history of theology. And, and so what your friend is saying there seems reasonable to us, but it's, it can be proven to be false many times over. Galatians 3.10 is one of them, and the one where Jesus said, be perfect as I'm perfect would certainly prove that. And, and what we'll talk about next week is this. God commands out of his utter holiness, not out of his idea about what man is able to do. All right? And so if God lowered his commands down to what sinners could do. Yeah, well, yeah, the cross wouldn't be necessary. And you'd have a whole lot of different, you know, you certainly you wouldn't say, if you say, Thou fool, you're in danger of eternal hell. Is anybody going to say, oops? I mean, are we in, are we in danger? I'm, I'm in danger. I've said worse than that before. Especially on the, on the car. <laughs> when I'm the only one in the car driving. Now, I would say that God commands out of His holiness be perfect as I am perfect, to show us our need for the cross and plus to give us moral guidance. Amen. All right? But if God commands only out of our ability, okay, let's look at these sinners and see what they're able to do. And then we'll just give you something that suits your own messed up life. There wouldn't be any commands at all. You'd, 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 the command would be, thou shalt do the best thy can. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. I'm, then I'm happy. Now, who had Dick? You had something, and then Larry here. In your paper, uh, that particular point was you made a pretty good point. You said good logic, bad Bible. I mean, it, was it sounds logical, but it's not biblical. Yeah. So what we have in the evangelical church is basically a whole church full of de facto Pelagians, and they don't know it, and because they don't know what Pelagius taught and why it's heretical. And it's so heretical that don't no, no, think about it. the Roman Catholic Church. Does that does the Roman Catholic Church believe in human ability? Oh yes, works, 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 works. And Pelagius was so extreme, the Roman Catholic Church anathematized him. So we have evangelicals that believe in man's ability more than the Catholics do. So the reason I'm willing to stick my neck out into these topics and have people get mad and want to chop it off is that I think it's dangerous. I, because the more you believe in man, the less you believe in the gospel and the grace of God. Okay, Larry. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be here next week to get that, but this sounds like a positional truth versus a practical truth you know, stance. But my, 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 the question I wanted to get at is that when you mention all these from the book of Hebrews and seem to be a running theme through it, yes. that it sounds like an a priori type of, you know, from the great yeah. message. Yeah, it's a continual, that's a continual argument in Hebrews. The uh, Forty uh, argument, which is from the lesser to the greater, or it can be the reverse, the greater to the lesser. In other words, uh, Jesus said, if God cares for the sparrow, and not a sparrow falls to the ground without his knowledge, how much more does he care about you? And, which by the way, that would refute the environmentalists right there. 
because they say that, that it's arrogance for humans to think that they're more important than any other species. Because they reject the biblical doctrine that humans are created in the image of God. Okay, but but the, yeah, that's the kind of argument that's used in Hebrews. So what we're seeing here is, in a, in a big sense, and where we're at back here in Hebrews twelve twenty is that if if under this lesser covenant, the old covenant, Moses, we had this awesome God on the mountain that couldn't be touched, how much greater is it to come to the Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem? And, and it's even more awesome, and it ends up in, at the end of Hebrews 12, is our God's consuming fire. It isn't that God's nature has changed any. It isn't that God in the Old Testament was this judge who judges sin, and the God in the New Testament is a God of love, and the two really aren't compatible with one another. People have said that in church history as well. God is, never changes. He's, he's always the same. He's always holy, awesome God that judges sin, and he's always a God of love and mercy that provides a means of salvation. But what's being said is that the new covenant means the salvation is that much greater. Amen. Because God's own son came and died. God's own son came and spoke to us. Instead of Moses going and talking to God and speaking to us, God himself came down and spoke to us in these last days through his son. Yes. And even Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham wasn't God who offered his son Isaac, who wasn't Jesus Christ. And God spared his son in the old covenant. But the new covenant, God the Father offered God the Son, and he didn't spare his son. So we're justified in a greater covenant by faith. Amen. Because they say sometimes we don't have work. What might we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus says, this is the work that you believe on him, whom he has sent. That's the faith, the greater covenant. Abraham wasn't God. Isaac wasn't Jesus Christ. That covenant, he was justified by faith. But the new covenant, God the Father looking away from Jesus Christ, his son, to redeem us. That's the greatest the greatest covenant ever, beyond the old covenant. So there was punishment in the old covenant, like you said, for disobeying. But they look at and say, we don't have any works, because we, we're justified by our works. But that is our work. What it's might we believe. do? Yeah. Jesus Christ did the work for us. Our faith is in him. And then Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10 says, after that, we are created unto good works, which the Holy Spirit will work through us. Amen. Thank you, Dan. Nice to have you back. He's back. We know, we know you got your health back. Keep taking those vitamins. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. <laughs> All right. Uh, yes, Mike. <laughs> I think another way of looking at it is that, you know, with the fall of man, there's this big divide between God and man. And only God can bridge that gap. Man can't bridge the gap. Mm -hmm. And as long as man is trying to bridge that gap, he will fail. In fact, he doesn't really want to anyway. His desire, like we talk about free will, his desire is not to bridge that gap. His desire is to rebel, to be as God. And only God then, you know, it says uh, the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing. And God is bridging this gap. And has done so with his son who has come to earth. This is all part of his plan. It's part of his plan as much as creation was. Mm -hmm. And this redemption then is, is God reaching out to a fallen world. It's all, he knew this before the foundations of the world. And uh, this is his provision. And we're as much dependent on him to be saved 
as we were dependent on him to be created in the first place. <laughs> wow. That's a good point. It's the new creation, right? We couldn't create ourselves. We can't save ourselves. Elderly dependent. You know, that's the doctrine that gives the most glory to God. And that, that's what Luther said. And uh, this Walther, who was Luther's, kind of re- resurrected Luther for Lutheranism back in the 19th century, said the same thing. That doctrine gives all the glory to God. He says all these other doctrines give glory to man. So well, I agree with what you say. Let's go to verse 21, 12, 21. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. Now, I've read some pages of commentary on this, and the reason for all of the commentary is that there's nowhere in the Old Testament where Moses said that. Okay? So then they say, well, maybe it was intertestamental Jewish literature, maybe it was Midrash, uh, maybe it was uh, an oral tradition that they had that was not written down. The, fra- the, the bottom line is, we don't know where the author of Hebrews got this phrase, because where whatever his source was is not extant now, but it is in the New Testament, so that's good enough for me. Any anybody else satisfied? All right, okay. So uh, that's how that's how I look at that. And, uh, the point, of, but but it's not that hard to understand his point, even though we might not know exactly where this phrase came from. The point is not obscure. The point was that God is so awesome. That even Moses, the mediator, saw the terror of God. Amen. Yes. What's it say? Um, for I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with the Lord, um, which the Lord was angry with you to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me at that time also. Okay, that, that's a good cross-reference. I think what, what the scholars are looking for is the Septuagint and the same wordings. But that's okay. That's a good cross-reference. So maybe it's just an allusion to that. It's close, that's close enough. Um, thank you. Now, let's have some more verses uh, looked up. Uh, Linda, uh, how are your glasses working today? Oh, we'll, see. we'll find out. Okay. <laughs> Daniel 10 and verse 8. And then Elizabeth, Isaiah 6, 3 through 5. And Larry, Revelation 1, 17. Actually, as a matter of fact, you could, this could be just a summation of all the times anybody saw God. They're full of fear and trembling. It was the only kind of response anybody had to the, to a theophany. Okay, so, I, uh, D- Daniel 10 and verse 8. Therefore, I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me. And I retain no strength. Yeah, that's what happened when Daniel saw a vision. And in Isaiah 6, 3 through 5, this is pretty famous, but we'll read it here. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the, th- of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, said Woe to me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Wow. So that's a powerful thing. So isn't it, it's interesting that Moses or Isaiah or Daniel or anybody else that came into that kind of sense of the presence of God always felt weak, terrified, sinful, uh, 
and so on. So that was Isaiah 6. Now we had one in Revelation 1 and verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. ESV. Okay, he fell on his feet like a dead man, yes. It's amazing when you consider these verses and compare them with the ministry of someone like Rodney Howard Brown who calls himself God bartender. Oh, the Holy Ghost bartender guy? Yeah. Dealing with the Holy Spirit and the laughing anointing and all these other things. You could be that flippant. Yeah. I agree, Karen. It's trivializing the presence of God. Plus, at the end of chapter 12, it goes on and says, you know, um, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Right. I want barking like dogs is in reverence and awe. No. Yeah. It's, it's, an, it's an amazing thing. Um, uh, somebody gave that, that used to come here gave an analogy one time. He, he has a business where he cleans airplanes. And one time he was called down to clean an airplane in Rochester because this King Hussein of Jordan was coming to get medical treatment. And he says, you should have seen the way that king, the sinner, was treated as with royalty and awe and respect. And, you know, everybody from his own entourage, the people greeting him, treated him with this ultimate respect. And he says, the, the thing that's shocking is that people give less respect to Jesus Christ, who's, true, this, who's really a king. And, and they have such a flippant approach to it. So, um, okay, so we have these theophanies. I thought of another one. Remember when in Luke, when Peter, uh, they they were trying to catch fish, and then Jesus got in a boat, and they got this big catch of fish. And Peter got a little glimpse of the fact that this is somebody more than just a man. And what did he say to Jesus? Depart from me, because I'm a sinful man. Very much like Isaiah's response. And so that, that's definitely the intent of these passages here in Hebrews is to give the Hebrew Christians a sense of the glory and awe of God because they were Hebrews, so they knew about the Old Testament. And so in their minds, they would think, wow, God coming on the mountain, now that was something. Or God in the holiest of holies, now that's something. Um, and, and that's really amazing. And But we don't see Jesus, so we don't get any sense of the same awe. But we're tempted not to. Okay? And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that, no, this is even more awesome. Amen. This is more glorious. And we should have a bigger sense of awe over what we've come to in the New Covenant than what they did when they went to this mountain. Amen. But we have to see it by faith because faith is the evidence of things not seen. So, um, there's also another one... Uh, um, just a little bit back in Hebrews, so we keep in mind the context. Hebrews 10.31, Carla, could you look that one up? Hebrews 10.31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Okay, Hebrews 10.31, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now that, so that, and it's repeated throughout the book of Hebrews. Um, what are some of the applications of that? You know, we, should, we need to take the new covenant seriously, wouldn't you say? Okay. And, and you know, as we have church, quote unquote, we're going to, there's a, I'm in the middle of a debate. I wrote a book about it, about what the church is, what the church should be teaching, what the church should be practicing. 
And, and debate centers about whether God determines the church and its practices or man does. Right? Yes. And the church is, is our expression now under the new covenant of our gathering, of our teaching, of the means of grace, how God changes lives, how God is to be worshipped, how God is to be reverenced. And dare we take something so holy as that and turn it into an entertainment enterprise for the world. Okay, and I think if, if you look at it in the context of the book of Hebrews, you would think that's a serious thing to do. Say, well, we don't like the terms of this covenant. It's not very entertaining. People are going to think God's boring. And so, therefore, we're going to change it. But see, I think we should have a bigger sense of awe than that. Amen. That we have something sacred. Yes. And how we approach the sacred is got to be with a little bigger sense of how important it is. Yes. You know, when you make the comment about thinking God is boring, you know, when you, when you come to start thinking God is boring, don't you think that they should really start thinking about your faith? You don't have the awe, you don't have the trembling, you don't have the fear that... I need to keep going, and this life is just not right. Mm-hmm. How can we bore it? It can be. But, it, but I was just quoting that. I, I did a little seminar Saturday, and I quoted that. I pulled that right out of the church growth book. You, you, you can't have a boring service because then people think God's boring. Well, that's allowing the world to dictate to us what they think is entertaining. And, you know, given all the entertainment the world has now, how are we going to compete with that anyhow? Are we going to have a Christian Disneyland? If your church, if your church is boring, then it's not, would you believe in that? It's not telling the people, the church, pastor, whoever the, whatever the ongoings are in the church, are not telling the people that. You know, Who God is. Let's and, get uncomfortable. You need this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But you know, Pete, really what it boils down to is one very simple issue. Because they're worried about what the unbelievers are going to think. Right. All right. And I would say there's nothing in the Bible that tells me that God's version of church is desirable to the unbeliever unless they're converted. Amen. All right, and that and that's just the simple, basic version, and we'll debate that one. All right, and I would say if you once you're saved, you got a whole different priority about what's boring or not boring. Okay, once you're saved, there's nothing more exciting than going to church with people that love Jesus and, and hearing the words of God and fellowshipping and, and what have you. But if you're unsaved, then that's going to be boring. Well, I don't care. Come in and you may become converted and then you'll find out that, that, that this is better than anything you ever had. Amen. Yes. Yeah, and the unchurched, the unsaved, they're, they're already enemies of God. It's not like they're neutral and we have to persuade them into the church or they'll go somewhere else. They're already at odds. They're already enemies. They already hate God. God bores them. God sickens them. And and that's where they start from. That's the starting position. That's the way I was. Not a position of neutrality yeah. where we need to influence them uh, God, otherwise they'll, they'll go away from God. I know. Yeah, that, so it takes the supernatural. We're talking about this next week, too. It takes the supernatural work of grace. When I was a teenager, my best friend was the, the manager of the city swimming pool. All right? And uh, Diane lived right across the street from the city swimming pool and spent most of her youth in the city swimming pool. And uh, 
And uh, the, the Dutch Reformed in town always had Sunday night church, and they believed in the Puritan Sabbath. And what the Puritan Sabbath, what they, what they believed is that Sunday replaces Sabbath. So you keep the idea of a Jewish Sabbath, only have it on Sunday. Now, we don't agree with that, but because this comes out of replacement theology. But nevertheless, that's their tradition, and I can see you know, they're free to do that, as long as they don't command everybody else. Well, the point was, um, Jack, my friend, had the swimming pool open on Sunday night. All right? And so the, the, the pastor came over and was rebuking him, and he says, if you have the swimming pool open on Sunday night, the people, our kids would rather go to your swimming pool than our church. And, and Jack says, well, I'm sorry, my swimming pool's more attractive to your kids than, my, than your church, but that's not my problem. <laughs> so, Ouch. <laughs> but, uh, so that, that's what was going on down there in Sheldon, Iowa in 1969. <laughs> All right, now, Hebrews 12.22. Yeah, we, let's get started on that. Hebrews 12.22. There's a lot to talk about now. We're, we're coming now to the other side of the contrast. Okay, here's the old. Now we're going, coming to the new. See, remember it was framed with you have not come to, then the old. And now it says, but you have come to, here's the new. Here's how it's described. To Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. Now, uh, as I understand this from, um, from the study I've done, that Mount Zion, city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem are talking about the same thing. It's just synonymous uh, ways to emphasize by using piling up synonyms. Alright? So that to the heavenly city where are gathered the saints of God, because notice it says in verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So this would be where all of the redeemed that have preceded us, all the way back from Genesis all the way through church history up until the present, anybody that's going to be with the Lord, they're assembled and enrolled in heaven. All right? And though we don't see them, we're a part of what they're doing. They're the great cloud of witnesses. All right? And um, have come here would mean that by faith, we have agreed by God's grace to the terms of the new covenant. We have come through the mediator of the new covenant, which is Jesus Christ. Amen. We have received forgiveness because of the sprinkling of the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus, which was shed once for all. Amen. And we have access into this holy assembly in heaven Amen. because the mediator ever lives to make intercession for us. He's torn the curtain in two. <laughs> He's made a pathway to God for us. And we have an anchor inside the veil. Ryan, you write a book about this? <laughs> He's writing a book on means of grace, and that will be discussed in there. And so the point is that we've come to something even greater, even more profound, more beneficial, with better promises, and a whole better situation than even this one under the Old Covenant, which all of these Hebrews would have agreed was an awesome thing, and they probably wish they'd been there with the people that that actually saw Moses. But we've got a greater Moses. We have 
Jesus Christ. Now, I was going to quote uh, William Lane here, whose commentary on Hebrews is just absolutely brilliant. I, I don't think there's anything better on the, on the book of Hebrews. But he says in this, In sharp uh, contradistinction from the scene at Sinai, every aspect of this vision produce, provides encouragement for coming boldly into the presence of God. Okay, so the first, stop right there. The first contrast was, even Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. Amen. And if a beast touches it, it has to be killed. And if a person touches it, they'll be stoned. Alright, so you, you, you don't go there. Now, in, in contrast to that, we actually have access. So, so that's one way which is lesser to greater arguments. It's a, it's a greater thing. So, encouragement to come boldly to the presence of God. The atmosphere of Mount Sinai, or Mount Zion, not Sinai, Zion. Now, the contrast between Sinai and Zion, and it doesn't mean the one in Jerusalem, it means the heavenly one. The atmosphere of Mount Zion is festive. The frightening visual images, Im- imagery of blazing fire, darkness, gloom, fades before the reality of the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The cacophony of whirlwind trumpet blast and the sound of words is muted and replaced by the joyful praise of angels in a festival, festival, festal gathering. The trembling congregation of Israel gathered solemnly at the base of the mountain is superseded by the assembly of those whose names are permanently ascribed in the heavenly archives. An overwhelming impression of, of the unapproachability of God is eclipsed in the experience of full access to the presence of God and of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. William Lane, Hebrews Commentary, page 464-465. Wow. Amen. What a way with words. Amen. I wish I could write like that. Outstanding. And so we have these glorious contrasts that just shows how wonderful it is. Now, of course, the warning is, as wonderful as this privilege is and the high price that's been paid for us to have it, the blood of Jesus Christ shed, if we neglect this, or if we get bored with it, or if we lay it aside, or if we get a different agenda, what an affront to God. Amen. It's an insult to the Holy Spirit. Amen. I think what we're seeing in the, in the church today is our carnal nature rising up and our inability to walk in faith. or our un, We don't want to walk in faith. We want something tangible that we can see. We can light a candle. We can pray in a certain position. All these things that are happening in the emergent church. They want the carnal. They want something that they can see and experience as opposed to walking in faith. And it's just unbelief. Right. And, and then we've been talking about that. It's a, it's a failure of faith. Because just like in, uh, the analogy I made in, in our little seminar last Saturday, if it was a horrible sin to want to go back to something more tangible, the old covenant, that at one time was ordained by God, what... What a, what, how much greater of a sin it is to go to something that never was ordained by God. Okay, Ryan. I kind of want to, in relation to what Dean just said, and uh, what we were talking about with Paul, I was counseling a, a, a young guy probably about a year and a half ago, and he um, he was one that had, at one time gotten, that's what we know, slain by the Spirit. Everybody knows what that means. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know what it means to be slain by the Spirit, then you're blessed. Okay. <laughs> well, what I'm really curious about is, is, and again, this relates to how we 
you know, experiences of God. Here in my hermeneutics class, we looked at Revelation 1, which we just read about falling at Jesus' feet like a dead man. And when you really come into the presence of the Most High, it's a feeling of, of awe and of your sinfulness. And what happened with this guy is, I started talking to him about this, and he hadn't even thought of the possibility that this maybe wasn't the, that great of an experience. But what happened was, is this slain of the Spirit had given him such an emotional high for so long that he had spent the last year and a half trying to get that experience back. Uh-huh. Whereas, and I look at what, what a stark contrast that is, as if we really go before the presence of God and realize our sinfulness, we're not chasing an experience. Mm-hmm. We're trying to fix our eyes on the ones that we know averts God's wrath. So in all practicality, you see the differences here. Yeah. And you can see how one can be deceived into simply chasing some sort of subjective experience rather than pursuing um, our salvation by faith in Christ. Right. It, it really is a failure of faith. And, and because of that, some people will get on an airplane and fly somewhere where they think they're going to find a theophany. Yeah. Uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I debated a guy who was uh, who was uh, defending the Pensacola thing, and I said, "Well, why is God bound to, to Pensacola?" And the answer was, "Well, we know God's om- omnipresent, but we think that God showed up in Pensacola as a theophany, so Pensacola becomes a new Sinai." Now, what I would say in response to that is that that's a rebuttal to the book of Hebrews. Okay, I don't care if there is a theophany. Let's just let's make a little argument here. Use some logic. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll do binary reductionism again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you were to debate, then you don't know what that means. Um, let's, let's just make a little logic of application to this Hebrews. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Let's look at it this way. If... What we've come to here by faith, which isn't geographically bound, because this is heavenly. So anywhere on earth, you've come to this by faith, no matter where you are. If this is so much greater than the theophany at Sinai, then if you went back to Sinai, it'd be a sin compared to how great this is. I would say that this is equally greater or more greater than Pensacola, Florida. Okay, is is Sinai uh, a lesser thing than Pensacola, Florida? And so, if what we come to that's heavenly is greater than what we knew to be a theophany, well, then it's certainly greater than what somebody thinks might be a theophany, but we don't know if it is or not because the Bible doesn't give us any information about Pensacola, Florida. Does that make sense? Now, on Ryan, what you're saying is true, because I, in, in the 30 years I've been in the ministry, I've known many people who have an experience like you're talking about, that they associated with God, which maybe it was, maybe it wasn't from God, but the experience becomes the ground of their faith. And when the experience fades away, they start shaking and wavering in their faith, and they go about life trying to recreate the experience. Or maybe there was a revival that was happening where somebody comes to the Lord and that meant a lot to them. And if they really came to the Lord, that's understandable. But they go about the rest of their life trying to recreate the sense that that revival had at the moment. You know, trying to bring the same music back or trying to get the same trappings or find something like that revival. But but what we're looking for is something less than what we have here. Right? 
And so what the what Hebrews is offering us is something that's true for all Christians, that is, is greater than a theophany, that it will never fade away, that we have always access to, that that is uh, the mediator of the new covenant, the great and glorious and precious promises, and that now one thing can diminish those for us other than unbelief. Does that make sense? And so if I think if we can just fully grasp the argument of Hebrews, it's a strong polemic against some of the trends in the church today, and it'll give us an anchor to our soul so that we don't are tossed to and fro and be unstable in our faith, but we have something that's there for us all the time. Amen. All right, so um, we'll pick up. i got a whole bunch of cross-references for Hebrews 12.22, and boy, do we have plenty to talk about, but that'll have to be two weeks from now. Next week, Ryan's going to join me. And we're going to talk about free will or the lacks thereof. <laughs> All right.